From Irmo to Istanbul, from Taipei to Tunisia, we tell the stories of the people who make the world of international disputes turn. We give glimpses into their lives and give insights from their experience. These accounts come from every sector and every industry from around the globe. Simply put, and without further ado, I am Chris Campbell, and you're listening to Tales of the Tribunal, where practice meets personality. Welcome back, Team TOT. It has been a long off-season, but we are officially back in your listening feeds. You're listening to Season 5, Episode 1 of Tales of the Tribunal with Chris Campbell. I am your host, Chris Campbell, and this season we are bringing you even more dynamic conversations with people from across the world of international law and business. I am so excited to share this season with you. But before we get into it, there are two quick housekeeping things that we need to address from the start of this season. First, very important, as season five kicks off, Tales of the Tribunal is recruiting. We are looking to bring on two, that's right, two members of the team to assist with communications and social media engagement. We have a number of events that we are collaborating with and fun activities planned for the year. And as it turns out, it's a good thing if people know that things things are in fact happening. So we want to be able to focus on pushing out great content for you, but we're going to need some help. So listeners, if you know anyone that is talented at social media engagement or general communications, tell them to drop us a line with an expression of interest at talesofthetribunal at gmail.com or on LinkedIn. I've been known to be around there. And second, this one is an important one. Please take a second as we get into the start of the show and leave us a comment on LinkedIn or a review on whatever your podcasting platform of choice is. It's actually one of the best ways to help others find the show, and you can just rate the show or leave a comment. It's really that easy. All right, without further ado, let's talk about this week's guest. We're kicking off season five with a barrister, someone who's known for their presence, wit, and legal acumen, not just with English law, but especially with international arbitration. But not just in the United Kingdom, but also in their native Brazil, Portugal, and much of the Lusophone-speaking world. I'm talking about Mr. Federico Singaraja of Gatehouse Chambers. Federico has a fascinating path into the legal profession and international practice, and aside from regularly speaking, and writing on the topics throughout international arbitration, also coaches the Vismut team for the Gray's Inn of Court, and heads up a new initiative called Nylon, or New York-London Arbitration, an initiative that fosters collaboration between the two arbitral hubs. It was a conversation that went by entirely too fast, and it's one I think that you're all going to enjoy. So, sit back, relax, welcome to season five, and enjoy my conversation with Federico Singoraja. And we'll see you on the other side of the show. Hello and welcome back to Tales of the Tribunal with Chris Campbell. I'm your host, Chris Campbell, here to tell you another tale, another story from around the wide, wide world of international law, business, and dispute resolution. Listeners, I am talking to you today from on location. I'm live at London International Disputes Weeks. You might hear some of the audio from this week and other episodes, perhaps Disputes Digest, but we had to sneak away from the main thoroughfare of the show, of the London Disputes Week and have a conversation with a friend of the show, a colleague in international arbitration, someone you will have just heard about in our intro, Federico Singaraja. Federico, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I'm flattered to be here, Chris. So we've been trying to get you on the show for um, at least a season, a season and a half now. Uh, before we jump into your story and all the interesting things that are going on, or maybe that's exactly where we start, I'm going to ask you the question that we ask all of our guests. Who are you? Where are you from? What do the people need to know? Thank you very much, Chris. Well, I'm very, very flattered, first of all, that you've been trying to get me on the show. Uh, I'm always happy to be here. Um, so who am I? What do you need to know? Uh, I am, I would safely say, I suspect, the only Brazilian, Sri Lankan, Liverpudlian barrister at the English bar. And I think, because of that combination, it was inevitable that I would always fall into international practice in the law. 
Sure. No, I, I think that that's a you're, you're right. I, look, if you're listening out there, if you know of another one, uh, you know, please let it know in the, in the inbox. But that's, that's quite the interesting backstory. So let's rewind. Um, how did you go? Well, one, where did you grow up? Maybe that's another uh, better question. Yeah, sure. Uh, well, look, I, I mostly grew up in Brazil, um, but uh, so my, my dad was Liverpudlian Sri Lankan and my mother's Brazilian. Um, they met in Brazil and then moved back to the UK. My sister was born here and a few years later they moved back to Brazil. And um, the deal that was struck, uh, the, the, the beginnings of my legal uh, experience must have been the contract struck between my mum and my dad, <laughs> where my dad said, look, we can move to Brazil and you can use it as a base, but it, it, it's, I still need to travel to go to, go to work, etc." And he was an academic and a researcher, so he wanted to always do uh, different work in different universities around the world. Um, and so I, I moved out of Brazil every couple of years and lived in a whole host of different countries, but always moved back to Brazil. Well, that's great. And so you made some reference to it there. Um, how did uh, young Fred discover that he wanted to be a lawyer? I mean, was it a lifelong dream or, or how did that come to be? Uh, unfortunately, it probably shames me to say, Chris, that it wasn't a lifelong dream. I'm always awestruck by uh, you young uh, blood who come through an interview and they say, yes, I remember when I was four and I had this happen to me. And ever since then, I was determined. Um, I was a bit of a lost soul and a, and a late blossomer, I would, I would say. Mm. Uh, and so I uh, went to university and studied sociology and politics. And at the end of that course, I had an epiphany that I neither wanted to be a politician nor a sociologist. And so uh, the, the closest thing to that, which I consider to be a proper job, in other words, a job where that you could, you could just say one word and like a teacher or a doctor and people knew what you were, mm -hmm. was a lawyer. Sure. Uh, and that, that's the kind of what fed into it. So um, I, I fell in love with the law over the course of discovering it by accident, I would say. Okay. Okay. And so, that, so that's how you got your, you know, your first footstep into the world of law. How does that then happen that you become an international lawyer? What was the, the, the sort of four-way into that experience? Yeah. So I moved, I moved to England when I was about 15, I want to say. Um, and so my realization of what a legal profession looked like always was informed by the system here. So I always knew of the division of barristers and solicitors here, and I always wanted to be a barrister, but then um, having done my politics and sociology degree, I then did what we have here, which is a conversion course, which is a one year postgraduate. And then I found that I was broke, so I needed to work. <laughs> uh, and by happenstance, I managed to get a job in Brazil. Uh, so I moved back to Brazil, um, and I realized then that I actually quite enjoyed having my connection again with Brazil and that I wanted to continue that. And I didn't really see how I could do that as a barrister because I thought barristers just put their wigs and gowns on and go to court in England. <laughs> uh, and you know, that kind of typical stereotypical preconception of what the bar is. Um, so I decided to actually qualify as a solicitor first. Um, and I did that. And then a year in, um, you know, again, by happenstance, uh, an opportunity presented itself for me to come to the bar, and I thought I'd give it a whirl. Sure, you decided to give it a whirl, and well, look, um, and so that, so let me, let me, one more question before we jump forward and more into international arbitration. So you've said here a few times, um, so as we're sitting today, we are actually talking from the Gray's Inn of Court. Um, and that's where, you know, for those listening at home, um, the system of training is a little bit different than uh, how it's done in the U.S. Can you give some insights into how, what that has looked like in terms of your relationship with the inn and your development and, uh, as a barrister? Sure. Um, so I had a, 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 an odd path to the bar, I would say very unusual, because I qualified first as a solicitor and yeah. then what, what we call a solicitor advocate. Uh, th there's lots of nuances between the two professions, but yeah. in a nutshell, um, a solicitor is more like a, a traditional attorney uh, in the US, and a barrister is more like purely a trial lawyer. So if you take all trial lawyers and put them into a separate profession, that's what effectively the bar is. Um, <clears throat> so uh, the, the, the main difference, therefore, being that barristers have higher rights of audience for the higher courts, and solicitors don't. But as a solicitor advocate, which is this 
additional qualification you can get, you do have the equivalent. So I was a solicitor advocate, which meant at that time, some 15 years ago, I just have to pay a fee, as you always do, yeah. and put in an application, and uh, they let me loose uh, as a barrister. Uh, so I didn't do pupillage, I didn't do uh, the, 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 the bar course, uh, or any of those things. Um, so coming back to your original question, yeah. how do you qualify? Um, so there are three phases to qualification in England and Wales. Um, the first one is the same for both solicitors and barristers. It's what we call the academic uh, stage. Sure. And it can either be a qualifying law degree or what I did, which is any degree and then a, a conversion course. And then that's where we, we fork away. And so solicitors do a specific postgraduate, or they did until very recently, called the Legal Practice Course, the LPC. Sure. Uh, and uh, the barrister did their own course, which is the Bar Vocational Course. Predominantly because of different skill sets involved, right? So the bar course is a lot of um, practice mooting, you know, you get video doing your oral advocacy, you practice cross-examination, um, rules of evidence, all of that kind of stuff. And solicitors do different things. They learn, um, you know, procedural matters, they learn solicitors' accounts, they learn client interviews and all that kind of stuff. So that's the vocational uh, phase. And then you have a practical stage, which is uh, for barristers, they do pupillage, and for solicitors, they do what's called a training contract. And then you are technically a fully-fledged, grown-up lawyer in whatever title you wish to uh, choose. However, here you still have to then practice either within a chambers, which is a setup for barristers, or within a law firm for three years. So you're not allowed to set up on your own. Right, until those those things are done. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, and so then let's go from that step into international arbitration. What was that jump? How did that bridge get connected? Yeah, so again, connecting with the Brazil thing, yeah. you know, um, I, because I transferred without any of that, uh, let's call it a safety net of pupillage, and, you know, I basically had a six-week advocacy course, and then I went forth and barristered. Mm. Uh, and that is often seen from the outside, the optics, is that, that oh, you know, you must be lucky. Wow, you got to circumvent all of this. But actually, it's quite scary, uh, and it's a very single swim. I suspect I'm very much one of the last generation who were able to do that. We have a lot more structure to the bar. But uh, therefore, you know, my USP at the bar was I'm Brazilian. Uh, I used to be Portuguese, I'm Brazilian. So I told anyone who was happy or unhappy to listen to that, uh, <laughs> that I was. And I sold myself out as someone who can read documents in Portuguese, interview clients and do conferences and even write opinions in Portuguese. And so my natural uh, market, if you like, was Latin America, Brazil, etc. And of course, you know, how do you, if you're a barrister, you're a trial lawyer, you do trials, you do disputes, you do contentious. Well, you know, there's, you're limiting yourself if you're just doing court work. And arbitration was just a natural forum where I could practice international disputes. Sure. And I guess, well, you kind of have talked about it, um, that, that oral advocacy that you've gotten um, through being a barrister, that served you, teed you up to do advocacy in international arbitration. I think so. I think so. I, I, I don't know of any other professional. I, I think, you know, my understanding of the U.S. is even though you have a single profession, trial lawyers are trial lawyers and other lawyers are other lawyers. So you wouldn't necessarily get... Although you might, in smaller firms, you wouldn't necessarily get a specialist who is drafting contracts one day and then the next day um, doing a you know, six-week trial. Uh, they, they still tend to sort of separate naturally. The, the bar where we exist, which are only eight jurisdictions around the world, most of them ex-English yeah. uh, common law uh, jurisdictions, uh, we are a specific profession that all we do is advocacy either in writing or orally, you know, we're cross-examination specialists. Um, I, I'd say that the thing that I value the most is my training and practice at the bar is, is the basic legal skills of sort of legal research, analytical drafting, all of those kind of things, because that's all we do. We don't have to bill. We don't have targets because we're self-employed. We don't have admin. All we do is really go to court and draft or argue orally. And so that's such a honing experience that I think it's invaluable. No, I think that that's right. And it sounds like it has been, and at least it's, it's worked out well for you. <laughs> so far, so good, Chris. So far, so good. 
Well, right. And look, let's stay with uh, English law here for, for just a little bit. Um, you know, at, at the time of recording, uh, just over the last month or two, we've seen uh, the release of the English Commercial Court Report. Um, and it seems like there were a number of interesting insights, perhaps in the field of, of arbitration. And, and I wonder, with that report, is there anything that, that comes to mind to you that is uh, worth noting or any insights or anything like that? Yeah, um, at the end of, or at the beginning of page nine, there's there's an overview of the work and it sort of sets out stuff about arbitration. And it's quite surprising, actually, that there have been increases to to challenges uh, to arbitral awards. Uh, Not so much under Section 69, which is unique to to the English jurisdiction, which is uh, uh, basically a challenge on a point of law. But on the sort of answer trial model law, uh, uh, grounds, uh, which is section 67, which is exceeding a jurisdiction, and section 68, which would be a procedural impropriety, there's been over 50% increases. Am I surprised? I don't know. I mean, dealing with Brazil uh, and Latin America generally, I think there's been a real increase uh, of uh, threatening arbitration as this final method of dispute resolution. I think the institution of arbitration has been under attack over a number of years. Mm. Um, there's an element of that. And then I think there's also an element of, you know, God loves a trier. And uh, if you lose, I think uh, a, lot of, a lot of lawyers want to at least give it, give it a whirl to see if any mud sticks. Sure, right. I mean, it's uh, better to have the court say no than you don't even try, right? And I think, you know, you're in a different position, I think, Chris, because you're an in-house lawyer. But I think if you're an external counsel, mm-hmm. to be able to say to the, to the client, look, oh, you know, the arbitrator got it wrong. Let's give it a whirl. Um, in some sophisticated clients such as yourself, I'm sure you can see through that. But th- there's a lot of people in the international arbitration world. We have different with people with very different experiences of that world. And a lot of deals, if you look at London, for example, you know, the largest number of arbitrations come from maritime stuff, and that's a lot of low-value, uh, back-of-a-cigarette-packet contract <laughs> trading with countries that don't have sophisticated systems, and, you know, they're chasing money that's really important to them. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think that, that that makes a lot of sense, and uh, absolutely, the different stakeholders uh, at play are going to have different motivations and different levels of tolerance for what they're willing to do after a award has been handed down by a tribunal. Um, you know, I, I think staying with the British uh, system, and I guess maybe more conceptual in nature, is obviously there was a big question, um, and I guess it sort of got obfuscated a little bit because um, of the immediate rise of the COVID-19 pandemic, but you have this question that's been around in the community for a while of how was the official Brexit going to affect London as a seat? And, uh, you know, a lot of us outsiders can, you know, guess, speculate and make guesses. But, you know, as someone that's on the ground here, have you seen any change? I mean, what are your, what are your thoughts there? I, I haven't seen it for myself. I've, I've heard hearsay. So, you know, there was always uh, a big uh, uh, talk about London losing out to maybe Paris or Geneva, or even, you know, newer places like maybe The Hague or, 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 or Sweden or somewhere in, in, in Germany. Um, so I haven't seen that. Uh, to me, uh, what made always sense was that arbitration would remain untouched. Uh, if anything, it would be there would be a boost because as we left the Brussels regulation, enforcement of judgments would be lost. And therefore, you know, as soon as the referendum result came out, I, I, I understood that there were more transactional lawyers inserting arbitration clauses where they might have put in, you know, uh, jurisdiction clauses of exclusive jurisdiction of England and Wales or London. That's, that was certainly the, the anecdotal stuff and the sort of logical stuff. I think actually there's been a boost to arbitration because of that. There's been a, a unforeseeable consequence potentially uh, off the back of Acmea. And oh, sure. Because we left, we're now somewhere where somebody could set up a business and still benefit from the uh, bilateral uh, treaty protection by setting up in the UK now that we're not uh, uh, within the EU and therefore don't fall foul of ACMEA. Of course, that's looking forward progressively. Uh, And the latest White Case QMUL report says that for the first time, Singapore is on par 
with London in terms of seats of arbitration. Now, in terms of usage, in, in terms of usage, yeah. now setting aside any deficiencies with the sample of the uh, <laughs> answers of that survey, which must come from a very Anglophone, London-based, I would have thought it would be weighted in that. But, but setting that aside, I can't say that Singapore is necessarily uh, a beneficiary of Brexit directly. So whether or not that has anything to do with Brexit, I, I, I'm doubtful of. Right. I mean, you know, there could kind of be a, a thought or an argument you made that there are a number of other reasons why people were choosing the UK and London anyway as a seat. And, you know, it no longer being part of the EU doesn't really, it's only had such a mitigated sort of impact on that, those reasons, whatever they may be. I, I, I agree. I mean, again, coming back to what I just said about, you know, the, the largest number of arbitrations are maritime arbitrations. And if you look at those, we have so many uh, links to London, like all BIMCO contracts have London as default, GAFTA and FOSFA, which are grain trading, oil trading, all have London. Um, there's so much of these trade associations, LMAA, etc. International maritime law is by default really English law. And when you have English law, when you have the institutions here, then I find it hard that any other jurisdiction will really be able to shift those arbitrations away in any meaningful way. And then when we talk about the real uh, chunky commercial arbitrations, you know, London is still a massive center for knowledge of construction law uh, and expertise. And then ultimately, you know, cash flows through London. And so if you want to enforce something easily, we have, you know, arbitration friendly courts, very, very versed and experienced judges. Uh, and yeah, I just don't think moving to an EU jurisdiction purely because of that is, you know, the, 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 the risk return doesn't weigh up to me. Sure. No, and I think that there's a lot of sense to what you've just said. I think, um, you know, when you talk about having to change uh, the way of resolving disputes across not just one, but multiple industries, you change where the, the flow of money, that's just a logistical sort of practical thing to worry about. Um, those are really easy recipes for keeping things as they are. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. Exactly. You know, there's no effect on the New York Convention. There's no effect on, on anything else which affects arbitration directly. Uh, Brexit had zero impact on arbitration as far as London is concerned. Had lots of impact in other things, but uh, not necessarily on arbitration, I would say. Yeah. And, um, and just on that thread, um, you know, I think, we again, at the time of recording, it, this would have been a couple of weeks ago, you saw that the, uh, the United Kingdom announced its intention to, uh, to sign on to the Singapore Convention. And I, and I wonder if that will be something that, you know, now that the UK has done it, if you'll see um, other countries follow suit or how that will affect practice here in, in, in country. I have to say, uh, Chris, so I teach a lot of arbitration to a lot of people. Sure. And the first misconception that I like to try and clarify mm -hmm. is that um, arbitration is this part of this thing called ADR, which is one thing. I think mediation, arbitration, and all other forms of dispute resolution are quite distinct and separate. Um, and you know, the the New York Convention in 1958, we were post-war. People were concerned about the future of humanity uh, and and conflict uh, in, in real sense of sort of wars, etc. Uh, and so I think the mood for signing up to the New York Convention was different. And, and with that boost, then, you know, we just see the after effects now. We're in however many, 170 odd countries now, uh, probably signed up. Uh, I don't think, uh, and this is just me speculating, that there is enough international goodwill for the Singapore Convention to have the same take up mm. as the New York Convention. Looking at things now, because obviously I don't have a crystal ball, so I don't know how things will go. We, we might all get, you know, fuzzy and, and huggy again at some point and be all one big happy family. But, you know, we, we, we see what's been happening here in the UK, in the US recently, uh, all around the world. We see very nationalistic, very insular views of, of nations, very protectionist and... Less globalist in nature, for yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. No, I think I think that's uh well. You consider the convention was signed some four years ago, 
and you still only have um, sort of limited global adoption. Even the U.S., who was a main proponent of it, has not uh, ratified it yet. So Exactly, yeah. I mean, interestingly, the, the other convention that's come out uh, is the Hague Convention uh, on, you know, recognition of judgments. And uh, anyone who uh, is interested in international arbitration will have read Gary Bourne's uh, manifesto against the signing of that and how it was dangerous. UK signed that as well. Um, again, that hasn't had much uptake either. I think probably for different reasons, but um, yeah, uh, I just I just don't think the world is in that place where they're happy to enter into agreements to cede uh, jurisdiction and autonomy uh, at this current stage in the world's development. No, that, that's a fair point. You know, um, you know, you could see some practical, perhaps usage, usages for it. But then, I mean, at the end of the day, uh, practicality without will is uh, a non-starter in the first place. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, you know, I wonder, going along with that same train of thought, are there any things in, you know, that you see in the arbitration world that you think that the, the industry really gets right? Or maybe something that you really like about the arbit- practice of arbitration in terms of, as a mechanism for resolving disputes? I think there's been a real concerted effort for many years now, obviously, the model law and New York Convention are probably the most successful examples of this, but there's a level of harmonization. Uh, And so, you know, all this soft law that's been coming around, there's been lots of different attempts. And I I think it's an organic process. And, you know, you, you have to move incrementally towards a level of harmonization. I, I think that's something the community does well. Uh, institutions such as the Chartered Institute or the IBA, obviously, are, are big, uh, active uh, players in that, and I think that's something that is done well. And the unification of communities, I think, bringing in more arbitrators and practitioners from different parts of the world, being really more of a move towards real inclusiveness rather than you know just 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 hot air. Yeah, no, I, I think that's well said um, because. It, you know, even if we aren't in a place where it's one big global community, people are doing business across borders, and they need some level of predictability and uh, protect, protection, frankly, um, in, in doing those transactions. Um, let's take the other side of the coin. What's one thing that you think the industry could, uh, you know, improve on? And look, no, you're not binding yourself to anything, but maybe one thing that you think could improve a little bit. Yeah, I mean, look, so I've been sitting for about six or seven years now, and uh, what I see that goes on within tribunals themselves is something which is often seen as taboo. And I've had informal conversations with other colleagues. Uh, And there are some things that I think could be ventilated and aired and maybe addressed. Uh, You know, we've started talking about things like unconscious bias and things like that. And that that kind of thing, I think, would... It's just a very unknown quantity what goes on within behind closed doors of a tribunal. And rightly so, I'm not saying that we should pierce through the confidentiality of a tribunal, but um, I think there could be more done to improve uh, those standards. Um, we are an unregulated profession, as it were, arbitrators. Um, you have something called profile, which is the... the, the the impression you give to others looking in, the optics, to import an American expression. And then you have the reality, and they don't always match up. And I know there's been, you know, movements like Arbitrator Intelligence and now just Mundi, etc., who try to do that in a, in a more uh, metric way. Um, but I think, yeah, more open discussions about what goes on within tribunals without going so far as breaking confidentiality would be of benefit to everyone, in my opinion. No, I, I think that makes a lot of sense, and um, and again, I guess you know that this may be a good follow up to that point. Um, are there maybe more broadly stated? Are there any topics you feel like don't get talked about enough? Like maybe not even something you want. You have an idea of when you want to change, but maybe things that you wish people would talk about more in the field. Um, I suppose we've had a real boost. It's, it's difficult, I think, to find a topic. You know, whenever I try to write an article, I try to think of something original and. Those things, are, those things are hard, right? Um, so I think things are getting more and more aired. And I think uh, as more people get into uh, this world, this bizarre community, which we call the international arbitration community, 
I think new topics, you know, whether they're younger generation or whether people from further afield, things that concern them ultimately are getting more space to get discussed. And there are more platforms, you know, now with, with podcasts and the internet and forums and whatever else, uh, th there's just more space. I think the community has grown enormously over the last few years, even since I've been in practice. Um, and I think things are getting talked about and there's no real barrier. I mean, you can, you can publish something yourself on LinkedIn if you really want to. So there's, there's no <laughs> obstacle, right, to, to if there's something that's bugging you for you to just to put it out there for the world to respond. No, I think that's true. And, and I, I'm a big proponent. I think that uh, more content, more media in the field is only a good thing. Um, you know, I, I think that, well, okay, I say only a good thing. Maybe at some point there's a critical mass where you don't need more web shows or podcasts or what have you. But I think that giving the opportunity for some of these topics to have light, to have to give young voices an opportunity to break through, um, I think that's all part of that equation. Yeah, I think it's kind of Darwinian, right? It's a bit like the internet. So you can have too much information, but ultimately, I hope, uh, if we are a sensible bunch, then uh, the stuff that's got merit and, 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 and substance uh, gets gets retweeted, as it were, and the stuff that, that really uh, is, is rubbish just, just gets falls by the wayside, I hope. Well, look, they haven't canceled our show yet, so... There we go. There we go. Obviously, that is Darwinianism in action. We're making it. We're making it. Um, let's zoom out for a second. Um, you know, you've had quite the journey into one being a barrister and two working and sitting as an arbitrator and doing counsel work. I wonder if there's any moments that stick out to you from your from this journey, whether it be the last six or seven years, decades, anything like that, that where they come to mind and you think, ah, this is why. You know, this has been, this is why I got into this. This has been a fulfilling moment. Is there anything like that that comes to you? There's been a few. I've, I think throughout my career have been uh, thrown into situations, which is sink or swim. And uh, so, so far, touch wood, uh, I, I, I've managed to come out of them relatively unscathed or at least uh, relatively without anyone catching me out. Mm. Uh, uh, and, you know, I don't think you want to be a barrister if you don't have it in your veins, that, that addiction to the rush of being on your feet, having a discussion with, I mean, with a tribunal, I find tribunals can be a little bit civilized, mm. uh, but certainly a high court judge won't be quite as uh, nice to you. And so you have to know your stuff. Yes. Uh, and that pushes you to really bring it up a notch, take it to the next level. And the same thing with cross-examination. And so for me, crossing is something that I truly, truly enjoy. Mm. And a, a great cross is something that I, I come out very satisfied. Mm. Uh, because ultimately, you know, especially at the bar, we, we often get um, hired to come into a case late on. So we've had no involvement and we're really there to do the best with what we've got. Uh, and sometimes, you know, uh, whoever's been dealing with it before has done a great job, um, sometimes not so much. Uh, and to me, there's nothing more there, which, which is more satisfying than, you know, picking up a lost case a few, a few days before, a few weeks before, and then pulling out something magical in a cross-examination uh, and then succeeding. To me, that's that's... That's what gets me going in the morning, yeah. Yeah, no, that, that's good. No, and, and, you know, one of the things that you said is uh, how you and I have gotten to know each other uh, over the last several years a little more is, you know, the level of preparation. And preparation, the tie-in is we both do coaching for the Vismut. Uh, you coach the Grey Zen team. I coach the, the fine folks down in South Carolina. And uh, I always, I, whenever we can make it happen, I'd like to do a pre-move with the Grey Zen team because I think it's, you know, you inevitably in your comments will talk about the importance of preparation and uh, really sort of holding their feet to the fire um, because maybe it happens with your team too. At some point, they're tired of hearing us say the same thing over and over again. And so hearing it from a different voice stated a different way, um, I think you're absolutely right um, about just there is that higher level of expectation when you want to be an advocate. I think so, you know, we teach advocacy here for the young barristers and I've taught it in different places and, you know, uh, uh, lately, more lately, I have uh, been asked to go in to uh, into private practice for, in Latin America 
and teach firms because they don't get that training there. Um, things like cross-examination, things like oral submissions. And, you know, we, 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 the technique that we employ is that we teach the basics. And often you can teach the basics and, and, and there is a rule book of do's and don'ts, which for your first few years, you really have to stick to that rule book. But there comes a point where you move, you, you graduate from being a mere Padawan and you turn <laughs> into a Jedi and you can then close the rule book and go off piece and you can still do a great job. But, you know, for, for most of us mere mortals, we stick to the rule book and the rule book will give you, as long as you do the prep and you read all the papers and you know your stuff, both in terms of legal submissions and the legal arguments and the law, which applies, which in international arbitration can be trickier than, than, than might look at first instance, and you know the facts, you know the documents, you know the evidence, then you can go in and you can, you can do a, a good job. And I, you know, going back to what you asked me, how does the barrister training, how has it helped me? I think getting a really good foundation in that, which I don't think necessarily everyone has the privilege of getting around the world. Yeah, and I think... You know, we're, we're talking about the English system right now, but, you know, when I think about my own legal training, back to some of my first bosses, um, both Judge Newman, shout out Judge if you're listening back home, and uh, the firm I worked for, Willoughby and Hafer, um, you know, they did, they both, all of them emphasized knowing your case, knowing your case, not only knowing your case, how can you talk about it all these different ways, how can you frame your argument on the fly to, to meet your audience, to fit the questioning, to never be on the defensive because you know your thing so well. Those were fundamentals that um, were pointed out from the bench when I was sitting with the judge where she was saying, you know, uh, lawyers doing well here, not doing well there. And, um, and then the law firm work that you can just point out people that excel at their craft. Yeah, exactly. I, that's, that's the other thing that's helped me a lot. One has been teaching advocacy. I think, you know, really, it's a bit like driving, right? You can drive for so long that you start picking up bad habits and you don't even know you're doing it. Yeah. So when you have to teach advocacy, you've got to bring it back to basics. And that's been incredibly helpful, I think, in, in my development of my own advocacy. But then the second thing is sitting, sitting as an arbitrator and seeing what really works and what is persuasive and what isn't. Yeah. Uh, and that the biggest lesson for me was from that from sitting has been don't flog a dead horse because <laughs> that 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 does not look good at all. Well, that's right, and I think um, sometimes this happens in writing a lot uh, too, especially with more younger lawyers. Is the, the feeling you need to like project? Oh, I'm I'm a real lawyer, so I'm going to use overly long clauses and and phrases that I don't really quite understand, but sound lawyerly. Um, I think that's a good way to trip yourself up to invite scrutiny. Um, and to really sort of lose your audience. Absolutely. And look, I'm a bit biased, right? Because so, I, I am a common lawyer. <laughs> I am a common law lawyer. Uh, you know, I may be Brazilian by birth and by, by, by my, 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 the way I was brought up. But as a lawyer, I have to say I am flexible to other ideas outside of the common law. But I am a common lawyer. And so what I do not find pleasurable at all when I'm sitting is that in some, not all, but some civil law jurisdictions, they become very, uh, I don't want to say dependent, um, but they, they become very, uh, they rely a lot upon written submissions mm. and reams and reams and reams of paper, uh, I do not think assist an arbitrator in the uh, decision-making process, especially when they're prolix and re repetitious. I mean, uh, you just zone out. Any human being does, I think. Well, that's right. And I think, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll shift from the advocacy point in just a moment, but I think your mastery, you, there's true projection of mastery of a case when you can simplify the terms, to simplify the narrative. And if you can't do that, if you're relying on jargon or really specific terminology to make your case, query whether or not you really understand what you're talking about. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, when I teach, uh, tonight I'm teaching, when I teach my students, I say, look, you need to operate at two levels. One is like the basic four-year-old level. And when you pick up a new case and you've got some kind of energy dispute and there's, 
a hundred different parties and people move from one company to the other and there's lots of different contracts going on. You need to be able to understand that and to do that you need to sort of translate it from that jargon down to, okay, ultimately the problem here is company A entered into a contract with company B and they breached this clause. And everything else is relevant, but it's kind of fluff, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and there may have been a hundred different variations to that contract or whatever it is, but ultimately that's what it is. And you need to, 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 to get it yourself to understand what's going on, you need to translate it to that. And then you need to translate it to a second level, which is to plead it in legal language so that it's got, you know, you've, you've got the cause of action in there, you've got the relevant facts that form that cause of action, you've got the relevant background, et cetera, et cetera. You've got, definitely got a remedy that you're requesting. It's got to be structured, it's got to be logical, and it's got to be in a formalistic enough way that it's going to get you home, but not, as you say, you know, overly jargoned and showing off how you, you have a command of the English language, <laughs> no matter how archaic those words you're using might be. That's right, that's right. Um, well, look, uh, one, more, one more question here before we uh, sort of shift uh, more, more broadly. Um, and this is a question I've been asking a lot of my guests this season because um, I think it's topical. Uh, what impacts, if any, do you think there will be from the rise of AI, machine models, and, and, and those types of things in the practice of law? Well, Chris, let me say this. I'm very much of the, uh, you know, the old Arnold Schwarzenegger Terminator generation. So, <laughs> you know, some of, some of the, those who may have come after me may, may refer more to the Matrix uh, sure. trilogy, but, but I'm very much of the Terminator T2 generation. And, you know, we, we've been fed this stuff throughout our childhood that at some point we better be careful because the machines may take over. And... We have seen certainly a level of uh, advancement that uh, has been predicted. Perhaps, you know, things like Moore's Law, etc. Sure. Our advancement has truly become exponential in my, you know, before my very eyes. AI is something I have to say, I don't fully understand the machinery, but do I need to? I mean, I've seen enough sci-fi to see, you know, the message. Uh, and so... I'm cautiously optimistic. I, I, I hope that uh, AI will continue like technology has thus far, which is, I think its role is to aid uh, the, the, the work. So it's just another tool, a very, very clever tool, but it's still just a tool. And I hope that it remains that way. However, I have to say in the last few weeks, there's, you know, all those, T2 Matrix uh, <laughs> uh, films of either robots, cyborgs taking over and coming back in time to kill uh, the, the, the human beings, or indeed that we're all going to become some kind of cows plugged in to make energy for the machines. Uh, I can't say as a father of two young children, the possibility of that doesn't concern me at all. Um, I think it would be uh, careless of me not to be concerned about that, but um, I think we're still a way away, and I think you know maybe maybe someone will make T three soon, and and, <laughs> and they'll tell us the way. Well, that, that that's right, and look, I think that it's one of those things. That even sitting here and having read and thought about it, at least some, I don't have a solution. I don't know, um, and I don't think I'll, most of us know what that world looks like. And I think all you can do is try and understand things as they come, and try and prepare for the world that's coming. The one thing you can't do is act like it's not happening. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And look, if I was a machine that just became sentient and I was looking at what humans have been doing, I probably wouldn't be too happy either. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> to take yourself offline, yeah. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Yeah, um, okay, well, it's fair enough. Well, look, let's, uh, let's, let's turn the page a little bit. Um, you know, I wonder, Fred, over the course of your career, and you talked about it a little bit um, early on in our conversation, what have been some of the maybe guiding forces or maybe um, role models or figures or anything like that um, from your career? Anyone that's maybe anyone or anything that's made an impact on you? Um, yeah, you know, what surprised me the most about the bar was despite the fact that we're all self-employed and we're all kind of competitors in a way, uh, how collegiate the profession is. Yeah. And uh, I've had a lot of, of, of luck in having some very senior, formidable advocates effectively take me under their wing. 
Um, and as I said, um, so I, I, you know, I didn't do uh, the, the bar course, I didn't do pupillage, and therefore I was not able to benefit from having a pupil supervisor and someone who is, as I see it, um, from the outside in, your guardian angel. Because you know, when you when you forge that relationship, when you're at that level, I think that creates a bond and that that endures throughout your career. And there's somebody that you you trust that you always have to go back to and say. No matter how old you are, really, it's a bit like you know, when you move out of your house and you've got your first kid and you're trying to build your IKEA kit and you've got to call on your dad because because you know they're mm -hmm. always there for you. So I, I think I, I missed out on that particular relationship in that in that in that way. But I've definitely had um, quite a few individuals. I'd say I've been very lucky to have four, five, six individuals throughout my career and uh, to date who I can call up who I ought not to be able to call up, but I can send a text message and they'll say, I'm in an eight week arbitration in <laughs> Seoul, Fred. Just give me a minute though. As soon as I finish for lunch, I'll call you. Uh, are you on your mobile? And they'll come and take the time to, to hear me out and you know, we'll meet up for lunch or dinner or whatever. And these people all around the world and they're incredibly senior and incredibly knowledgeable and skillful. And that to me has been a wonderful experience which i try to pass down uh so you know initiatives like teaching arbitration and teaching generally i mean if you're a practitioner it's i think it's kind of nice to teach it's a, it's a good positive experience but it, the best thing is really just watching you know kids especially kids who perhaps haven't had all the opportunities that others may have had uh, but have the potential just watching them flourish before your very eyes no, I think that's well said. And I think um, anyone that's gone far enough or been successful enough, we've all had those people that have opened those doors for us, taken us under their wing um, and the like. So I, I think that's really well put. Um, okay. What, what are you reading right now? What's on your bookshelf? Do you know, I haven't read something for a little while, but the, the last few years where I've read, um, I've very much shifted from fiction to nonfiction. Okay. And I have a, a, an odd... Uh, uh, amateur interest, which is quantum mechanics. Mm. So I love anything to do. You know, the, 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 you know, why we're all here, how the universe began, all those questions. To me, I, I just, I just find it all fascinating. Unfortunately, I don't have sufficient math skills to be able to really get into it in a proper way. <laughs> okay, but you know, things like, uh, uh, you know. Uh, Isaac Newton or Albert Einstein and all you know all the, all that kind of stuff right down to, to you know the the the, the Scandi's, uh later stuff and you know uh, double slit experiment and about wave particle duality all of that kind of stuff I'm a proper geek for no and I think it makes sense um, for me what I like to think about sometimes is to blow my own mind sometimes to just read about space and you know the vastness of it all the things constantly going around in our universe and. You know, at the same time, I'm sitting here on my on this rock recording a podcast, or, or like arguing over some random contract. It's um, it's really humbling when you think about the scale of the universe. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, that's probably one of my biggest interests. And I suppose the other thing I like to read about is is kind of, I think being in England, it's almost inevitable as well. Is history and yeah. you know, especially legal history. Uh, the last few articles I've written, I've tried to sort of trace back. People have asked me to write about all sorts of weird things. And um, often in England, when you write about anything, it's 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 got steeped in history. You know, even arbitration. I mean, first time arbitration was in the statute books in England was 1697, and I've got a copy on my computer of the actual statute. And oh. you know, it's I find all that stuff absolutely brilliant. No, it is really interesting. Okay, so so the, so you've been doing some reading, but like you know, in a Personal interest sort of way. In, in an unfortunate worky way, but yeah. you know, uh, I'm enough of a geek that I kind of enjoy it. So uh, cool. yeah, I mean, finding time to properly read and turn off, I, I've, I've not been able to find it in the last year or so. We've got two kids and that, that keeps me busy. So I'm either working or I'm looking after the kids and spending time with them, so. Sure, okay, uh, another rapid fire question. What kind of music are you into? What are some of your favorite artists? Oh, quite eclectic. So okay. again, uh, I, I'd say because of my uh, growing up around the world, so I, obviously being Brazilian, I, at the heart, I, I really enjoy things like Bossa Nova and Samba. Uh, and from my little region of Brazil, we have, Brazil is very rich 
uh, in music, I okay. have to say. Yeah, true. There's, there's a lot of different genres and uh, the, the population is really immersed in it. And I would say, oddly enough, one of the things I've always been in awe of is how much decent music this little island has produced. If you think, you know, dating back from the Beatles all mm. the way through, uh, you know, John, Bowie, uh, uh, Oasis, Coldplay, Radiohead, uh, lots and lots of different uh, genres and lots of talent. Adele, you know. Ed Sheeran. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Who, who did not put... Uh, uh, copyright and fringe uh, Marvin exactly. Gaye exactly yeah exactly <laughs> so uh, you know I, I, so these are two big influences but then I like really odd stuff as well I was really into dance music in my teenage years so okay. I, I quite like a bit of uh, electronic music etc and then you know some when I was in Australia uh, uh, there's a guy called Xavier Rudd who plays He's a one-man band, uh, and he plays the didgeridoo and all sorts of different things simultaneously. And uh, there's some weird stuff, which is very unique to uh, the kind of places I was and the experience. I think you know, music is very much about nostalgia and memory, right? So well, that's true. That's true. Okay. Well, look. Let me ask you this question. Um, let's say you're approached by a recent grad or um, student, or maybe even someone that's just looking to make a shift in their field to uh, what we do in international arbitration. Uh, what advice would you give them to uh, prepare them or help them do that? That is a good question, Chris, and I, <laughs> that's something you know I'm asked a lot, and I'm sure, like you, as a vis coach, uh, vis mood coach we see a lot of interest. International arbitration is uh, seen as a little bit sexy, maybe, glamorous, you know, the, the, the optics are that you are getting paid ridiculous amounts of money to jump on a first-class flight, <laughs> uh, you know, and have fans waved at you during that flight to get to somewhere, and you're gonna wake up, you know, minty fresh, and you're gonna roll in, to an arbitration hearing room, uh, and then you're going to just kick butt throughout the the hearing, and then you're going to go to your five star hotel and chill out with a pina colada on a rooftop pool mm -hmm. and relax until the next day, where you might do that two or three times. I'm waiting on that one for it. That's that, I'm waiting on that experience. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and so I think there is a disproportionate amount of interest versus the amount of actual opportunities in the market yes um, although arbitration has been growing considerably uh, even in our practice lifetimes I would say that there is still certainly in the Western world I would say and that means the US continental Europe England and even I can't speak for Singapore I don't have much experience in that side of things but certainly my experience in Australia and Southeast Asia there isn't that much work for all the people who want to do it. And so I suppose my first piece of advice is make sure you really want to do it because otherwise you're going to be quite disappointed because I think there are so few places that if you don't really want it, you're probably not going to make it. Yeah. And that's not a nice conversation to have with a bright-eyed, bushy-tailed young student, mm -hmm. but I unfortunately am that cutthroat with that first conversation. And if I feel that these people have um, a real hunger for it, then I would say, first of all, my perception, my observation is that the people who make it aren't necessarily the brightest or the most talented. They're the ones who don't give up. Yes. You know, perseverance to me trumps any other potential quality that you may have, even if you are not very bright and very mediocre, if you keep going and keep going, you will pick up experience which will help all those things and uh, you will eventually succeed. Um, and, and so that, 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 that's, that's the main thing I can impart, just keep going and then just get yourself out there. I mean, profile is key in this, in this world. That's right. Um, and and the, one of my biggest things that I've said on the show a number of times is just not being afraid to, exactly, I mean, you're not going to, probably say something groundbreaking in the first article you write or first thing you put out there, but you just start saying some stuff and, you know, learn learn a couple of things really well, learn how your own domestic laws practice, and um, a door will eventually open, but you have to, like you said, continue to knock and wait for that door. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. You know, 
learning the craft of being a lawyer first, I think is, is invaluable. It, we are, I think, experiencing the first generation where anyone's actually been taught arbitration. Mm. Uh, you know, all those that came before us. Certainly, I don't recall, it may just have been my own ignorance, but I don't recall there being any international arbitration postgraduates when I was coming through. Yeah. Um, and so, I think perhaps there's been a distortion of reality in the sense that there might be a generation coming through now that think that they can just go into international arbitration, which may be true, which may be true, but few and far between. <laughs> yeah, I think you've got to rough it, rough it as a lawyer first, yeah. uh, and then once you've, you know, learned the craft of, of lawyering, then you can move on to something a little bit different. Yeah, and that, and you know, for those listening, that doesn't even mean that you need to like go practice for 10, 15 years first and then make the shift. You know, the attitude that I took uh, took it with and what I've said on the show a few times is I had my main job, whatever it was, and then my second job was writing articles, reading, speaking at conferences, helping, not even speaking at conferences, let me, I've skipped, helping, like doing anything they'll let you do. Can you, will you send some emails? Will you help with this project? And then eventually you get invited to moderate and then you get eventually invited to speak. And um, that, that's kind of, it's a process. It's a slow burn. Yeah, exactly. I think it's it's definitely, and it's a very incremental, yeah. uh, you know, I, uh, as I said, I, right at the beginning, I'm very flattered to have been invited to, to come and speak to you for many, many years. Uh, I, you know, I, I wouldn't have thought I would ever got an invite. Uh, and and, and I, I know that off the back of everything that I've been plugging away for the last 15 years, every now and again, I can go to a conference somewhere I've never been before and I'll bump into someone and they will have heard of me. Yeah. Uh, and that is, that is the result of just compound accumulation of my continuous presence, whether it be, as you say, you know, writing articles, speaking at events, whatever it is, even having my name next to someone as, you know, the 11th or 111th person on the organizing committee of this conference. Mm -hmm. um, but eventually, you know, the more you can appear on a Google search uh, for the good reasons, uh, exactly, is 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 a good measure, I think, of how successful you're most likely, but not definitely, going to be. Well said. Well said. Um, look, Fred, we're coming to the last couple of questions. Um, let's say that it's five p.m. on a Friday. Um, nothing work related uh, to do. You can do literally whatever you want. You've got a magic wand for the weekend. How do you spend that weekend? I'm going somewhere with no mobile phone signal. Okay. With a beach yeah. uh, and waves and with my surfboard. Okay, you're sounding very Brazilian. Preferably yeah. somewhere I don't need a wetsuit. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. No, that's a good weekend. And that, that's me. That's me for the weekend. Yeah. Somewhere I don't have to ever put on a pair of shoes. Hey, well, that sounds good. That sounds yeah, nice. yeah. Yeah. It's almost summertime, so I'm, I'm picking up what you're throwing down, Fred. Um, Last question. Uh, do you want to give any shout outs to the people listening at home? Any tips of the cap? Anything like that? Um, well, I'd like to, I'd love to give a shout out to all my students if they are listening out there. Uh, the, the, very, very pleased to be involved with all of them uh, and see them now. Actually, now that we've been doing a few years coming through the ranks. Um, and any tips, any tips, you know, Try and get yourself onto this podcast because you, you, I, I feel like I've made it now. <laughs> I feel like I'm now a proper grown up member of the arbitral community. Uh, and so that, that's why I need to really, Chris. Uh, that's fair enough. Fair enough. Well, look, uh, Fred, it always uh, happens. The time goes by uh, way too quickly. Thanks for coming by. Thanks a lot, Chris. Uh, good luck and Godspeed. All right. Well, thanks so much, Fred. Uh, do you want to sign us off? Thanks, Chris. Uh, I'm Frederico Singaraja, and there's no disputing it. You are listening to Tales of the Tribunal. Thanks so much, and we will see y'all next time. And there we go. How about that? A great conversation to kick off season five of the show. As we said from the outset, Federico is one of the most interesting personalities I've met in the field. And so when we cross paths in Vienna for the VIS, in Lisbon, and then again in London, I knew that we had to get him on the show. I hope that you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. On another note, there's no Disputes Digest this week. We didn't want to distract from the kickoff of season five. 
So we hope you enjoyed this episode and we'll be back with another episode of Disputes Digest soon enough. We're taking some looks at how that's going to work, but we'll be back in the newsfeed with uh, Disputes Digest soon enough. And of course, next week, we'll be back with another episode of Tales of the Tribunal. And don't forget, as we said at the outset, we are recruiting team members to assist with social media management and communications over the next month. We'll post flyers as well, and we'd greatly appreciate if you can spread the word. Finally, that's it for this week. I appreciate you turning in. It's great to be back with you. If there's anyone you'd like to see on the show, don't hesitate to reach out to us at talesofthetribunal at gmail.com. And of course, if you have any comments or recommendations for the show, don't hesitate to get in touch. And of course, we'll be traveling a little bit the rest of the year. So when we see you, if you see that uh, myself or anyone from the show is going to be around, don't hesitate to reach out. And we would love to connect. It's always good to see uh, listeners and part of the TOT fam um, live and in person. And also, finally, and certainly not least, a big shout out to the production team over at MoBeta Solutions. This episode that you've just heard and the audio that you're listening to were carried out by Joshua and Jaden Campbell under the direction of Maurice Campbell. And they did a great job managing production of Disputes Digest and getting us ready to premiere this episode. With that, thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next week. And don't forget, you're listening to Tales of the Tribunal. None of the views shared on today or any episode of Tales of the Tribunal is presented as legal advice nor advice of any kind. No compensation was provided to any person or party for their appearance on the show, nor do any of the statements made represent any particular organization, legal position, or viewpoint. All interviewees appear on an arm's length basis, and their appearances should not be construed as any bias or preferred affiliation with the host or host's employer. All rights reserved.